Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Centre for African Studies annual lecture. Before I introduce this year's speaker, I'd like to just say a few words about the Centre of African Studies, what it is that we do and who we are, for those who perhaps are new to SOAS and don't know us. Um, next year will be CASI's 50th anniversary, so we're one of the oldest centres dedicated to research on and in Africa within the UK. In fact, I think only the Edinburgh Centre uh, is one year older than us, to uh, our chagrin. And together, our members constitute one of the largest centres of expertise on a whole wide range of issues related to Africa outside of the African continent itself. And over the past 50 years, CAS has seen its mission as encompassing three very broad areas. Firstly, to promote research and discussion on Africa and awareness of issues that are of importance to Africa and Africans within SOAS, within the wider University of London, but also to the public, the general public within the UK and to debates within the UK. Secondly, we see part of our role as contributing to debates and to policy discussions that are related to Africa, to Africa's history, to Africa's future, and to the contemporary cultural, social, economic, political, and so on issues that affect it. And thirdly, working in partnership with African research institutes and higher education institutions, seeking to build up research collaboration to help support capacity building and capacity strengthening and to, to champion excellent research and excellent researchers where we can find them. And as part of these objectives, as part of this mission, we put on a huge range of activities and events each year. And on the table outside, I think there should still be a few copies of our annual report, which can also be found online. And I'd encourage you to have a flick through. If you haven't heard of us before, I think you'll be surprised about the range of activities that we put on. We put on the normal kind of academic seminars, bringing together academic colleagues across the University of London. But we also put on art exhibitions, music concerts. We help support film festivals, bringing the best African films to uh, the UK. We work with diaspora groups, working or li people living in the UK. We work with businesses and other organisations who are seeking to engage better with Africa. We have projects with organisations such as the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, through which we run an annual residential school in a different African, different African country, in a different African region every year, a week-long residential school for Africans on issues related to governance. And as part of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation support, we also have scholarships for African students, one PhD scholarship and two master's scholarships. And one of my students has just uh, successfully passed his PhD, funded through this scholarship, and it's making a real difference. These scholars are returning back to their home countries and making a real difference in the political and social lives um, of the countries from which they're based. We also have scholarships for young, early career Nigerian uh, academics uh, through the Levantis Foundation. And we're very grateful to all the organisations that support us and enable to do this really important work. But the annual lecture is a celebration, I think, of all that we think is good about the Centre of African Studies, of all that we really want to achieve. Firstly, it engages with, with important, significant issues, be they cultural or social or political. Its commitment to providing a platform for African voices, to bring African voices 
to the attention of the wider public. Voices that may well be heard in institutions like SOAS, but perhaps don't get the airing that they might otherwise do in British media and other discussion forums. And its desire to engage with audiences beyond the academic. I can see many students, some from our department, some from other departments here, other colleagues, but I can also see a lot of people who I don't recognize, who I think have come not from the University of London, not from the world of academia. And we warmly welcome you. We, these are the people that we want to engage with because we think the things that are being discussed are so important. And we're very fortunate tonight to have Dr. Kumi Naidu as our speaker. Kumi is Greenpeace International's Executive Director, and he's long been involved in the work of Greenpeace, having sat on Greenpeace's Africa board when they opened their first African offices back in 2008. But of course, his engagement with politics and political struggle date back a long further, back to the liberation struggle against apartheid in South Africa. As a result of his resistance activities, Kumi was expelled from high school, he was arrested by the state in 1986, and eventually found himself in exile in the UK. And following the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990, Kumi returned to South Africa, where amongst many other activities, he worked for the Independent Electoral Commission during the 1994 elections. He was the founding executive director of the South African National NGO Coalition and the Secretary General and Chief Executive Officer of Civicus, an organization which many of you will have heard of that seeks to strengthen citizen action and civil society across the world. And this very brief summary, which, as I'm sure all of you here know, excludes a huge number of his achievements, really shows his expertise and his knowledge of what he will be speaking about tonight. Indeed, I can think of few people better placed to talk about civil disobedience and non-violent direct action. So on behalf of the Centre of African Studies and SOAS University of London, I'd like to welcome Kumi Naidu to here to our annual lecture and to invite him up to give his talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, dear brothers and sisters, I should confess that whenever I speak to audiences in the UK, I'm always, remembered, uh, I'm always reminded about the first time I had to speak, which was when I was a 22-year-old uh, young student activist who had just fled South Africa, and I was asked by Oxfam to go to Blackpool to the TUC conference on the overnight train uh, to go and address the TUC. Now, I was 22 years old. I, didn't, I thought I was addressing the whole TUC conference. When I got there, uh, I discovered it was what was called a fringe meeting. And the only association I had with fringe at that time in my life was a particular kind of hairstyle. So I didn't exactly know what a fringe meeting was. So I pitched up at the venue, and there was just uh, there was nobody there. And then 10 minutes later, one person pitched up. I said, let's just wait for a few minutes more. And after 20 minutes, there was nobody. And then I said, why don't we both just go have a coffee and, and I can tell you what's happening in South Africa. And the person said, I made a real effort to come here. I'd really appreciate it if you gave your speech. <laughs> so 30 minutes later, he dutifully clapped. And then I said, Okay, Bob, Bob I am, I'm going now. He said, no, 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 you've got to stay. I'm the other speaker. You have to stay and listen to me. 
The moment of history that we find ourselves in is a deeply unsettling one. The reality of the world that we live in today is that we are suffering from a deep democratic deficit, where in fact, even though since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the world was promised a peace dividend, which suggested that all the resources that was going into military expenditure, spying and so on, will be diverted to addressing the real issues that humanity faced. Sadly, what we have seen since the fall of the Berlin Wall is actually increases in expenditure. And in fact, I would argue, not actually an increase in democracy, but simply an increase in the number of countries that can claim that they're having elections. One of the notions about democracy, and Tony Benn used to always remind us of this, he used to say one of the things democracy is supposed to do is to balance the wallet with the ballot. That is, the voice and power of ordinary people should be balanced with the power and wealth of the rich. Sadly, if we look at the situation today in the world, in many countries we have the form of democracy without the substance of democracy. For example, we can describe the United States today as the best democracy money can buy. And when we unpack that power that's bought and which money buys it, you will find that it is very often in the most excessively polluting industries, such as oil, gas, coal, nuclear, military, and so on. The other problem we have is that when many countries like my own were achieving democracy for the first time, real power around many issues that we confronted was shifting from the national to the global levels. So some of you might remember a slogan in the early 1980s that said, think globally, act locally. How many of you heard that at some point? What was behind that slogan was irrespective of the issue that you were trying to address at the national or local level, you needed to better understand our global structures, global discourse, global narratives, and global power has an impact on what you can or cannot achieve at the local or national level. However, one of the ironies of the moment of history that we are living in is that when countries like my own South Africa were getting formal electoral democracy for the first time in the 1990s, real power was shifting from the national to the global levels. So today you cannot talk about addressing any environmental issue, certainly climate change or trade, or even an issue such as HIV AIDS as a national issue. Because even if you take an issue like HIV AIDS, the pricing of life-saving pharmaceutical drugs happens at the at a global level through patenting organizations like uh, the World Intellectual Property Organization. So today you can have in Africa, for example, good, decent, anti-corrupt, efficient political leaders who want to do the right thing, but they come up against the power of global institutions that actually constrain what they can do, or what they cannot do. So when we look at the global governance institutions, usually referred to as the United Nations, World Bank, IMF, and so on. These institutions are largely 
stuck in the geopolitics of 1945. That, in fact, the governance of these uh, institutions are very much rooted in a power logic that pertained at this end of the Second World War. So today, for example, in the Se UN Security Council, uh, we have five countries that have the permanent seat and a veto, the UK being one of it. And you ask yourself, why should the UK have a veto at the Security Council? Anybody has a justification? I mean, it only makes sense if you look at it in 1945 terms that the UK and France, small population sizes, by the way, in relative terms, were colonial hegemons controlling large amounts of the world's population. And the power dynamics then led it to secure that vote. But today, the only basis, the only reason why the UK and France can justify having a veto at the Security Council is because it has weapons of mass destruction nuclear weapons. Now, if you use that argument, then evidently we should include North Korea, Israel, and a range of other countries, including Pakistan and, and uh, India, amongst others. So the problem we have is that even though many of the solutions, such as on climate, that needs to come from global governance institutions, we are finding that global governance institutions are suffering from a democratic deficit, a compliance deficit because most of the decisions taken at these global gatherings with a lot of fanfare and a lot of carbon don't get implied, uh, implemented and complied with. We have a coherence deficit, meaning that you've got a multiplicity of global governance institutions with you know, your health minister shooting off to the WTO, your finance minister to the World Bank, your foreign minister to the uh, uh, UN and so on. And essentially you have high levels of incoherence. So we are in a situation right now where, in fact, governance is in real, real crisis because the solutions that we need to come from local governance institutions to all the way to global governance institutions, to a large extent, if you're brutally honest on performance, you would say that the performance, to put it politely, is largely pathetic. Uh, the third... Uh, uh, reality of the moment of history we live in is that we are seeing a deep, deep sense of social exclusion. Now, in a, in a lot of the academic literature, certainly when I was a student, the term social exclusion was used largely to describe minority constituencies of citizens. You know, people living with HIV AIDS, people with alternative sexual orientations, um, ethnic, uh, ethnic, religious and um, linguistic minorities, uh, and so on. However, when you today really look at the question of who is socially excluded and who is socially included in our societies, I would argue that the majority of the people in the world today feel a sense of social exclusion. Women in most societies, older people in most societies, younger people in most societies, and you just take those three, there's many more I can add, right? feel a sense of social... So who the hell is democracy serving and who actually is included? So today, we have to recognize that in fact the contribution made by the Occupy movement in that distinction of the 1% versus the 
in fact, was a very valuable intellectual contribution to the struggles of our time. And I know very few people acknowledge the Occupy movement for making intellectual contributions, but I think if we look at it deeply, that, sh that has shaped the narratives for deeper discussions as we move forward. Then, one of the things that we're also dealing with right now is the aftermath of the brilliance of President Bush and Prime Minister Blair in the way that they framed the so-called response to the tragedy of September 11, 2001. And rather than seeing it as a gross violation of human rights and a crime against humanity, in their brilliance, they decided to call it a war on terror. Now firstly, actually I'll tell you a quick story. I was in a debate with George Bush's uh, Secretary of State, uh, sorry, Attorney General, John Ashcroft. Any of you from the United States here? Now you go ask those people that how super liberal John Ashcroft is in his views, they will tell you. Uh, so John Ashcroft ends up on a panel, or I end up on a panel at the World Economic Forum with the topic, how will the war on terrorism shape the future? And in that debate with him, I said basically calling our response to September 11th as a war on terror is ethically, strategically, tactically, and actually grammatically flawed, <laughs> right? Because terror is a tactic, and as we know, governments have used them all throughout history and continue to use them even today, right? So when, and, and in the conversation with him, uh, I said the problem is our response to September 11th has given juice and legitimacy to the very people that we say we want to undermine. And in fact, they have used it to actually gain more legitimacy and many, many of the acts taken in the name of fighting terrorism, there's no question has actually contributed to fueling terrorism and actually has seen fundamental tenets of democracy being undermined. So when I tell Mr. Ashcroft this, he responds by saying, it just so happens that I was on the extreme right on the panel. So it sounded very funny when he didn't know my name and, and he didn't know most of the presidents or prime ministers on the panel either. But, <laughs> but with me, he just said, I'm deeply perturbed at the panelists on the far right, <laughs> at, which, at which the whole audience, for reducing everything to uh, race. And clearly that was not what I was doing. And I apologized for my inarticulateness and said, sir, I can assure you coming from Africa, I wouldn't reduce everything to race. However, I want to assure you that when I was kicked off a plane last year in Atlanta, Georgia, oh, oh sorry, he then, came, he then came back saying that he was very perturbed by what he said, and he said, I believe that communities should be based on the basis of values uh, and race and so on is not important. And then he, then he quoted Martin Luther King, which I didn't realize was a shock to the Americans in the audience because they, Americans knew, even sort of more conservative Americans thought, oh, that's too much. <laughs> John Ashcroft trying to evoke Martin Luther King to make a point in a global forum. And so he then goes on to say, you know, Martin Luther King said people should be judged by the content of the character, not the color of the skin. To which I responded, sir, I want to say to you that I'm sorry that you thought I reduced everything to race, but I want to tell you that when I was taken off a flight in Atlanta last year, it had nothing to do with the 
content of my character. Uh, and since then, for that flippant remark, I've had wonderful joy every time I visit the United States from the moment you enter at immigration control. Which brings me to another problem, and that is just, what you might wonder, what is this curtailment of international civic mobility? One of the realities of building resistance to the path that our governments and political uh, business leaders have gone is the ability of us around the world, citizens, activists, to come together from time to time. And I can tell you it's a nightmare. When I was at Civicus, we had this problem all the time. That if you organize a global gathering, most of the folks from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East will not get visas, right? And it's got worse and worse. And, you know, I actually had a trim yesterday before I came to this meeting, because my daughter said I should. <laughs> but, you know, I fit the profile. It just so happens I'm not Arabic or I'm not Muslim. But I know exactly what it means to be profiled that way uh, in the work that I do traveling around the world. So actually, it's become very difficult, actually, even for people who are doing citizen activism to actually meet from certain parts of the world, which, by the way, for Africans is an issue, because even when we have a global sort of push at the UN and so on, we can't get our best people to get the visas to come and speak, and we have to often rely on our brothers and sisters from the big international development NGOs, for example. And that's not ideal. So the context within which we are operating has been completely made much more urgent and serious as a result of the climate crisis. I will come to that in a second in more detail. Oxfam brought out a report, right, in January this year, which said that 85 richest people in the world's combined wealth is equal to the 3.5 billion poorest people in the world. Right? How many of you feel revolted by this? But, but those of us who are not revolted must go home tonight. No, no, seriously. And, and it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you're not revolted. And ask yourself, why is it that I'm not revolted by it? Why is it that we have now come to accept certain things that are completely absurd as given reality? So, sorry, that's a, a government official and that's a CEO of a big oil company. So, so, to summarize, the world that we live in today is characterized maybe by more elections, but actually by shrinking democratic space, an increase in military expenditure, and still, with all the science before us, more than $1.4 trillion annually of taxpayer money is going towards subsidizing the oil, coal, and gas industry, what are called fossil fuel subsidies. And at this point, I should just say that I'm very pleased to be at SOAS, actually, because when I was a student in exile, SOAS used to be a, like a refuge where you came to meet like-minded people. And I'm really pleased that today um, is a historic day for SOAS, actually. Uh, and for the university system in the UK, potentially, because I had a wonderful meeting with the Fossil Free Student Campaign Group, and today the investment committee of the university was meeting, and I understand they have made the first step in the right direction 
which is they've put a moratorium on future fossil fuel investments. I'd like to you to ask to say a thank you to the fossil free. However, this has all become much more serious now because the recent intergovernmental panel on climate change, the biggest scientific initiative probably in human history, has brought out a set of reports who should have a chilling effect on each and every one of us. Amongst some of the things that they note is that if we are to avert catastrophic climate change, we would have to leave between 60 to 80% of known oil, coal and gas reserves where they are. We shouldn't even bother about searching for new ones if we are to be able to keep the warming of the planet under manageable circumstances. But let me just give you a few more shocking statistics. In March of last year, the concentration of carbon on the planet reached 400 parts per million. Now, some of you might know a wonderful organization called 350.org. It's called 350.org because more than 20 years ago, 350 parts per million of carbon concentration was considered to be what we should not surpass when we were below 350. The last time the planet had 400 parts per million concentration of carbon, the Arctic was ice-free, Africa was covered with savanna forests, and sea levels in certain places was almost 15 to 20 meters higher than it is right now. Then add to that the Arctic sea ice, the lowest level in the summer months was breached already in 2012. And bear in mind that the Arctic sea ice serves as a refrigerator or air conditioner of the planet. Because uh, I, I, in 2012, we did an action against a British company called Kern Energy in Greenland. And I was part of the last uh, bit of the action and spent a few days in, in prison after an action of civil disobedience on, an, on their oil rig. And the main response of folks back home in Africa, what the hell is an African doing in the Arctic? It's so <laughs> bloody cold there. What's that got to do with us? And it's understandable why people don't think there's a connection. But understand that the Arctic sea ice plays a critical role as a climate regulator. And the fact that we have burned so much of fossil fuels that leaves the Arctic sea content during the summer months so low that when Hurricane Sandy happens in New York, for example, it's, it's not that hurricanes or cyclones or typhoons never happened in the past. Clearly, they did. But when you look at Hurricane Sandy, for example, and the science is pretty clear on it now, that the intensity, the velocity, the height of the waves, and so on, is related to uh, the Arctic sea ice situation as well as uh, sea level rise. By the way, I should say that for the first time in January of this year, those of you who followed the news of the extreme weather events in the US, it was refreshing to see for the first time some of the journalists began to talk about the polar vortex you know, between and the Arctic freeze. But there's a huge amount of effort to take this conversation and make it more accessible to large numbers of people. So bottom line is, we are being told you should not burn any more uh, fossil fuels. That's what the science is telling us. And how many of you are familiar with 
two degrees. If I say two degrees, how, many of, how much of you rings a bell? Put up, put up your hands. Okay, about half of us. So, there are a couple of things about two degrees that you need to know. So, the scientists told us that we cannot afford for the planet to warm up beyond two degrees based on industrial, pre-industrial times, before we started burning oil, coal, and gas. But two degrees is a compromise figure because in Copenhagen at the climate summit in uh, 2009, most of the small island states, most of the developing countries and all were pushing for one and a half degrees, right? The dominant countries of the world, particularly the major developed nations, pushed for two degrees and that's what prevailed. Where are we now? Does anybody know where are we now from pre-industrial times till now? Anybody knows? We are already at 0 0.8, okay? Now on 0 0.8, in the last decade, we've already seen a 100% increase in extreme weather events. Shouldn't we be saying, maybe we cannot actually afford any more significant warming because in fact, large amounts of infrastructure and population are gonna be impacted. So the reality is our political and business leaders are suffering from a classic and terrible case of cognitive dissonance, where all the facts are there that we need to make significant change, but they're not willing. I should say that any resemblance of that photograph to Tony Blair is completely accidental. <laughs> Seriously. So, our political leaders, one of the things they say often is, come on, be realistic, we can't make all this change so quickly, and so on, and you have to be, you know, one of the things that I don't want to be any longer is I don't want to be realistic. Because basically, when those with power say be realistic, essentially they're saying back the status quo irrespective of whether it's just, unjust, viable, sustainable, and so on. So in making an argument to you today that engaging in peaceful civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action has become more important now than ever before, I want to introduce a small clip from Martin Luther King. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now, of course, we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. As I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today, in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I'm proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself through racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. Martin Luther King 
is basically, I pulled this out to share with you because I think that's a moment where we have got to start asking questions. Whether we have actually adjusted to a society that is unsustainable, that's heading for disaster, and that in fact if we don't do something radical in our thinking and visioning about the future, that in fact we are not, by the way, we are not letting down the planet. Because you know, quite a lot, we environmentalists, we will hear us often say, save the planet. I just want to tell you some good news and lots of bad news that will come. <laughs> is that we don't have to worry about saving the planet. The planet actually does not need to be saved. Because if humanity warms up the planet to the point that humanity cannot exist there, the planet will still be there. It will be bruised and battered by humanity's crimes on it. But actually, if we are out of the way, the forests will replenish, the oceans will come back, and so on. So don't worry about the planet. The planet will sort itself out. What is at stake is whether humanity can coexist in a mutually interdependent relationship with nature for centuries and centuries to come. To put differently, this struggle is about securing our children and their children's future. And when put like that, we have to be willing to say the things that are unpopular to say the things that actually might bring the accusation of you being unrealistic and romantic and so on. And we have to speak truth to power, however uncomfortable the truth is. Now, the most difficult place to do that sometimes is the United States. And I was addressing a group of environmental foundations uh, a year ago, and an irate woman in the audience put up her hand and said, Dr. Naidu, have you ever heard of Martin Luther King? And then I said, yes, yes, I did. And then she said, do you know what his most famous speech was called? And I thought it was a trick question, so I was very tentatively saying, uh, I, I have a dream? She said, yes, it's I have a dream. It's not I have a nightmare. When I hear you speak, it sounds like you have a nightmare. <laughs> How are you going to inspire people? But let me just be serious. That's the biggest challenge. That's the biggest challenge of the climate movement specifically, but the social justice movement more generally, because if you say it as it is, if you tell the truth, it's as if you are just spreading bloom and doom. But the good news is, as I will say later, I think we can turn this around. But along those lines of what Martin Luther King just said, I want to evoke the words of Dr. Cornell West, where he says, if your success is defined as being well adjusted to injustice and well adapted to indifference, then we don't want successful leaders. We want great leaders who love the people enough and respect the people enough to be unbought, unbound, unafraid, and unintimidated to tell the truth. Now, the next sentence I'm about to use will surprise you. I strongly support the CIA and the Pentagon. And if you know my history, that's a bit of a shocking sentence for me to start a sentence. When in 2003, they said to President Bush that in the coming decades, the biggest threat to peace, security, and stability will not come from conventional security threats, will not come from terrorism, but in fact will come from the threats of climate change. President Bush, in his wisdom and as a faithful servant of the oil, coal, and gas industry, promptly buried that report. So the reality is today that you cannot talk about peace and security without talking about what climate change means when it's disrupting water, 
land, food, and so on. If you look at the genocide in Darfur, history will record that as the first major resource war brought about by climate impacts. Yes, the media portrayed it as mainly identity manipulation by opportunistic political elites and so on, and of course that was an element at the end result of it. But as Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General notes, that Lake Chad, one of the largest inland seas in the world historically, has shrunk to the size of a pond. The Sahel Desert is marching southwards at the rate of close to a mile a year. So land scarcity, water scarcity, together with food scarcity that flows from it, created the toxic mix that allowed the kind of conflagration of violence that we saw in uh, Darfur. Just to be clear that this is happening all over uh, the continent and elsewhere, there are many conflicts that are happening in Africa right now that are clearly climate-induced. Here's a tragedy for Africa, by the way, double tragedy. Africa is the continent today, I would argue, that are taking the worst impacts of climate change already. However, the problem for Africa is that it is not cataclysmic, iconic media moments such as a typhoon, a hurricane, or a cyclone. Because, you know, when those things happen, it's such a visible thing, it happens within a short space of time and people can see it. The, what we are experiencing on the African continent is mainly climate-induced drought. Uh, and unfortunately, drought, its manifestation is after a long period when you're seeing dead animals and emaciated people and so on. So within that context, I want to stay now with why civil disobedience is so important. For me, I make no apologies as an African that this is about survival of my people on my continent. And then ask ourselves, why is it the science is clear, most sensible people seem to get it. Even today, a majority of CEOs of big companies are not climate denialists. But why is it so difficult to change? And yeah, I want to go back to the 70s and evoke French sociologist called Louis Althusser. Anybody here ever came across Althusser? Just to see how different the books people read these days. Yeah, I can see a couple of old lefties putting up their hands. <laughs> okay, so Althusser made a most important distinction, I believe, when he said that when we think about understanding our government's control, narrative and power, we often think mainly about the repressive state apparatus, the army, the police, and the use of formal regulations and so on. What he exposed, though, is that, in fact, the more insidious form of control is the ideological state apparatus, the control of the media, the control of the schooling system, creating the framework for religion and also for social and cultural norms. So within that context, if you look at the United States today, the US doesn't need to use its repressive state apparatus because its ideological state apparatus is so fundamentally strong. I mean, almost 10 years after 9-11, the majority of people in the United States still believed that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9-11, when the rest of the world knew otherwise. And it's not as if the U our brothers and sisters in the US have a monopoly on ignorance and stupidity, right? It's because I've lived in the United States. If you look at what's put before the American people in terms of uh, what's happening, so let me do a quick exercise. How many of you have seen CNN International at any hotel or something? 
So from those of you who put up your hands, we've seen it. How many of you think CNN International is a left-wing, radical, or particularly revolutionary news source? <laughs> Nobody. Oh, only one person. <laughs> so, however, my friends from the US can confirm this. The folks in the United States don't even see CNN International. They see a watered-down version of CNN called either CNN or CNN Headline News. But within the continuum of political opinion in the US, this watered-down version of CNN International is seen as on the far left, and Fox is on the far right, right? So what chance do the American people have about actually understanding you know, exactly what's happening with climate change when, in fact, the ownership structures and so on from the fossil fuel industry, media organizations and so on are overlapping. So within that context, I thought, this is uh, the actor Matt Damon, but he's not going to perform. He's going to read a piece from Howard Zinn, who was a political science professor, a labor historian, and, and writer and activist on civil disobedience. You're saying our problem is civil disobedience. That is not our problem. Our problem is civil obedience. Our problem is the numbers of people all over the world who have obeyed the dictates of the leaders of their government and have gone to war. And millions have been killed because of this obedience. We recognize this for Nazi Germany. We know that the problem there was obedience, that the people obeyed Hitler. People obeyed. That was wrong. They should have challenged, and they should have resisted. But now we have Western civilization, the rule of law. The rule of law has regularized and maximized the injustice that existed before the rule of law. That is what the rule of law has done. When in all the nations of the world, the rule of law is the darling of the leaders and the plague of the people, we ought to begin to recognize this. We have to transcend these national boundaries in our thinking. Nixon and Brezhnev have much more in common with one another than we have with Nixon. J. Edgar Hoover has far more in common with the head of the Soviet secret police than he has with us. It's the international dedication to law and order that binds the leaders of all countries in a comradely bond. That's why we're always so surprised when they get together. They smile, they shake hands, they smoke cigars. They really like one another, no matter what they say. <laughs> we're going to need to go outside the law to stop obeying the laws that demand killing or that allocate wealth the way it's been done or that put people in jail for petty technical offenses and keep other people out of jail for enormous crimes. Martin Luther King is one of the key contemporary architects of civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action. When challenged about using civil disobedience, responded to the leadership of the uh, mainstream religious organizations of that time. He said, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, 
I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow misunderstanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Within that context, how does things play out in terms of what we as citizens have to do to actually shift the agenda? I think we must acknowledge we are in a total David and Goliath type of struggle. What we are seeing is that private citizens um, will confront just, uh, injustice are coming increasingly against repression, invasion of privacy, and, and so on. And I don't know whether anybody knows the statistic that just came out two weeks ago, two months ago. Anybody knows how many environmental activists get killed annually? On average, two environmental activists are killed every week. They might not describe themselves, by the way, as environmental activists. Uh, they might be indigenous rights activists, uh, people who are fighting around very domestic uh, protection of water resources and so on. Most of this is happening hidden from the mainstream in the Amazon, in, other, uh, uh, in the Congo Basin forests and elsewhere. But bear in mind that people are standing up and are paying a big price. But the people that are standing up are the people, for example, in Peru and Bolivia, in Bolivia especially, who are saying, we cannot drink oil and we cannot eat coal, uh, gold. That in fact, we have to protect our water sources for future generations and so on. And as you know, uh, indigenous peoples of the world, right, actually, if assuming we were the last people here at SOAS, on, uh, last people on the planet, right? And we were asked to write the, assuming everybody has died because of climate change and we were the last people here. And we were asked to write the history of the world. I guarantee you one of the things we will consider very seriously saying, that our very notion of what was civilization was wrong, right? That people, who came from indigenous backgrounds, the Native Americans, the First Nations folks in Canada, in, in, in New Zealand, in Africa, Latin America, and so on. They had a much deeper sense of how humanity needed to coexist with nature. And in fact, we might actually discover and conclude that many of us were actually the uncivilized ones, and that they probably should have civilized us rather than us trying to civilize them where indeed a lot of the problems actually started. But importantly, I want to conclude now by saying that the struggle for justice has never been a popularity contest. And we must also recognize the deep, deep hypocrisy amongst those with power and those in the so-called mainstream. Because today, let's look at some of these folks here. This is Martin Luther King, 41 times arrested, Rosa Parks, about 25 times arrested. Madiba, 27 years in prison. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, in and out of uh, British-run prisons. So when these folks stood up, 
They were vilified, they were facing repression and so on. But let's look how history now remembers them. Martin Luther King as a uh, memorial that's as big as any president in the United States in the presidential uh, area in Washington, D.C. Rosa Parks, there's a memorial. Nelson Mandela was the first person in history that every nation in the world, while he was still alive, declared his birthday as a, a day of global social action. And of course, that's Mahatma Gandhi's prison. And I also put Wangari Matai. Unfortunately, I couldn't find a photograph quick enough of Wangari being arrested. Otherwise, I would have had it in the other slide. But those of you who don't know, Wangari Matai was arrested several times uh, in a fight to, and one of the first voices of environmental activism that brought environment and development together, rather than seeing it as two opposed competing polarities. So civil disobedience, John Rawls said, is a public, nonviolent, and conscientious breach of law undertaken with the aims of bringing about a change in laws or government policies. And along the continuum, you start with legal protests that stay within the constraints of the law, nonviolent civil disobedience, and more uh, militant protests. I am making here an argument for particularly uh, nonviolent civil disobedience and, and quite consciously saying that, in fact, violent forms of resistance actually are counterproductive. And in the question time, I'm, I'm happy to raise that with you. So civil disobedience is characterized by a deep sense of conscientiousness, meaning that people take it very seriously. They're prepared to put their lives on the line. They're prepared to take risks. It must and always is accompanied, if it's to be successful, with very strategic, thoughtful ways of communication, thinking about the audience beforehand and the multiple. Because basically, civil disobedience is a disruptive type of intervention. You have to think about how you get it out so that those with power feel a sense that they've been embarrassed and that they have to act, something that Ma uh, Mahatma Gandhi was able to do very well, and I would say adherence to nonviolence. So why I am, as somebody who growing up in apartheid South Africa, of course, after many, many acts of brutality against people around me and myself, you know, it was very easy to you know, arrive at a point where you say, oh, the armed struggle has to be something that we use. But history shows that, in fact, whenever struggles have adopted a violent component, it's not a question about whether the violence in the first case was justified or not justified. Of course, apartheid was a brutality, so you can say anything to try to bring down apartheid was justified. But you have to, leadership has to think about what are the long-term implications and whether, in fact, violence actually helps in the long run. And I would argue that today, especially when I speak to young people, I say to young people, I understand your anger, I understand your impatience, but understand that when we go out and protest, and if five of us out of 5,000 people you know, breaks one shop window, for example, that's all that the media hears about. Why we were there, what? So whether it's tactically, strategically, or uh, ethically, uh, I, can, I will strongly make the argument today that violent civil disobedience is not helpful. That's not to say that I do not recognize the rights of people who live under occupation and so on. But while you can agree the rights, 
you do not have to agree that tactically and so on, it is something that's helpful. So the justification for civil disobedience, I would conclude by saying, it's right to do it when, in res when you are responding to an instance of substantial and clear injustice or threat, when an alternative ways to achieve the objective have been exhausted, when done in coordination with other groups, and when humanity's survival is under threat. Let's be very clear that there are intellectuals and other opposition to civil disobedience. People say that sometimes minority opinions can get a lot of attention because of civil disobedience, that it stops people from engaging in dialogue and so on. But as Martin Luther King has argued and others, that civil disobedience is very much a trigger to get those with power to the negotiating table. And I can give you many examples, which I'm going to do very like rapidly. So Nelson Mandela, the anti-apartheid struggle, had we not engaged in civil disobedience, he would not, we would not have got uh, the adversaries to the table. And, and just going very quickly, I thought I'll bring this quotation because some of you might know this. The importance of personal courage from leadership at this moment in our history is critically important along these lines. When Mandela said, I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities, it is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. And I want to say to you today, controversially as it might sound, that there is no struggle in the history of humanity that's bigger and more important than the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change. Because, you know, apartheid affected largely people in my country, civil rights people in the United States. Even if you take denying the women the right to vote half or just over half the population on the planet, when we're talking climate change, it impacts on every human being and every life form that walks this planet. But is it going to be easy? And I will bring this to a close shortly. Protest because they're worried that they'll get arrested, beaten, or just simply surveilled in the massive surveillance grid that exists today. Well, one, I was blessed to go to jail because I was willing to bear witness and deal with the consequences. I would do it again. But there's no doubt there's an increasing repression. There's an attempt to create a culture, not just of silence, but a culture of fear, especially for the younger generation, to intimidate them, to make sure they're so afraid that they're not willing to step out, bear witness in public, and have to deal with the consequences of, of civil disobedience. We just simply have to have more courage, that we're, we're dealing now with a much more autocratic and authoritarian state, and you have to be more courageous. You have to be more courageous to tell you the truth. You have to be more willing to deal with the cost. And in the end, uh, some of us simply have to die, that's all. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the chilling effect is what they're counting on. A reaction, I think, is brilliant. But, but just to round up, Notwithstanding these dangers, which people understand, resistance is on the rise. Yeah, in the UK, we are seeing growing opposition on fracking. Uh, this is India, where Greenpeace has been taking action against this coal company. This coal company has brought a 66 million euro legal claim against Greenpeace. Do they need to win it? No. It's what's called slap suits, S-L-A-P-P. -P. It sounds kind of funky, but it's not. It stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. B uh, big corporations are intensively using the court system as well to stifle resistance. This was the 2012 
the first action we did in that platform, and this is 2011, uh, 2013. As you know, uh, our folks were arrested for almost 100, uh, in prison for almost 100 days. And I'm very happy to tell you, though, that after nine months, just three days ago, the Russian government finally agreed to release our ship. So we'll be hopefully going back there to do a next protest once we fix the ship. <laughs> so, so to conclude with, what is my message here today? Basically, I think we need to stop playing by the rules imposed by the status quo. We have to find an antidote to apathy, and we need to act with moral courage. We need to be careful that we don't make the mistake of confusing access to power for influence over power. Because bear in mind, lots of governments now see themselves on shaky ground. And they're inviting civil society people to come talk to us, be on this panel, be on this commission, do this, that. And we, for the, and I participated in many of it over the last 20 years. We also got kind of caught up in the moment and started going and participating in all of these things. And we said, oh no, the government taking us seriously, we're having influence. But actually, when you unpack it and boil it down, it's really access to power with a mirage of the sense that you have influence. I'm not saying that 100% no influence, but for the amount of influence, it doesn't warrant the bus fare that you took to get to the <laughs> meeting. So what is at stake is too important for us to continue with the dithering and lack of political will by the political and business class. We have to recognize now that nature does not negotiate, that addressing the shifting power of nature is just as important as the shifting nature of power. And unless we understand that, we are heading for disaster. And importantly, we have to go beyond the approach of our governments. After the financial crisis, for example, UK government, most governments in the world and so on, they were into this mode of system recovery, system protection, and system maintenance, right? What is needed right now is system redesign, system innovation, and system transformation. The current system cannot work for many reasons, including the fact that if we have to deliver to all the people in the world the lifestyles, materially speaking, that folks in a developed country like the UK take for grant, uh, granted and the elites in developing countries take for granted, according to our friends in WWF, we will need between five and eight planets. We have one planet. And we have to get serious about how we actually manage a finite set of resources, not just for us, but for the generations uh, yet to come. So I want to end with saying that we can turn this around into an advantage. There are many studies, not just only by Greenpeace, but by a range of thinkers and think tanks and so on that shows if we get serious about shifting from a dirty brown fossil fuel based driven economy to an economy that is driven by clean, green, renewable energy that's more inclusive and so on, that in fact we can have a double win. We can generate millions of jobs in a new green inclusive economy if you were smart and did it the right way, as well as bring down our emissions and address the very serious threat of climate change. I want to end with a quotation, with a small story from, uh, from my own history. Uh, when I was 22 years old, I was fleeing South Africa into exile. And my best friend at that time, a guy called Lenny Naidu, asked me a question. This is the last time we'd see each other before we fled into different ways into exile. He said, Kumi, what is the biggest contribution we can make to the cause of humanity? I said, that's a very simple question. Give your life. And at that time in South Africa, every, every other weekend, we were at funerals burying 
people who had been killed, you know, in riots and, and at the funeral somebody else will get killed and it was just a vicious cycle. And so I said, you know, giving your life. And he said, no, Kumi, that's a wrong answer. He said, it's not giving your life, but giving the rest of your life. I was 22 years old at the time. My friend Lenny was way ahead of us. He was the first environmentalist I knew. And I think at that time he's, he was only one of a thousand people on the African continent that voluntarily was a vegetarian. Uh, <laughs> so he was kind of way ahead of his time. So I kind of shrugged my shoulders. We always would say these things. And we fled into exile in two separate directions. Two years later, I got the call that my friend Lenny and three young women from my home city were brutally murdered by elements of the apartheid regime. And there were so many bullets in his body, his parents was not, were not able to even recognize him in the mortuary. So I had to think deep and hard about the distinction between giving your life and giving the rest of your life. For example, Robert Mugabe could have been killed in 1981. The world would have remembered Robert Mugabe as the leader of our fight for independence and, and so on. But he stayed man for more than 30 years and he's still there. Right? Today the narrative around Robert Mugabe is very different. So what he was saying is, you know, going, getting, participating and demonstrating, getting shot and killed doesn't actually take too much of skill, talent, and so on, right? But being able to stay and fight until the injustices that you're addressing are eradicated or the threats that you're addressing are eradicated, that is the biggest contribution that we can make. So in conclusion, I want to say to each and every one of you, find a way that you can contribute. We have a moral choice here. We are either part of the solution or part of the problem. And there is never a situation that there's nothing that we can do to make a difference. Every small contribution helps. Not everybody is going to go and occupy an oil rig in the Russian Arctic. That's not expected of each and every one of us. Um, however, each and every one of us have to find a way in which when our children turn around 10 years from now and say, when the writing was on the wall, the shit was about to hit the fan, what the hell did you do? I hope that each and every one of us in this room will be able to say, I did A, B, and C, and I hope we'll be able to see, say, and we succeeded. Because that's the choice that's before us. Thank you very much. And by the way, you, you have an option, just in case you are scratching of what can I do, join the SOAS Fossil Free Campaign and get the university to diverse from fossil fuels. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kumi. You may have been accused by that American woman of presenting a, a nightmare of negativity, but I think we'll all agree here that what you presented, it may not constitute or may not be best described as a dream, but I think it was inspirational and, uh, and a call to arms that I think I hope everyone here will be listening to. We have about 20, 25 minutes for questions, so I'll forego the chair's usual privilege because I'm sure there are many. So if you want to ask a question, please raise your hand. Given what you said, that global institutions are broken, that the UN triple F triple C, you know, in Paris, we won't, I don't know if we're going to get a, an agreement on climate <coughs> change. I don't know if 
after the next round of Millennium Development Goals expiring that we'll actually get a set of goals that will actually will eradicate not just extreme poverty but poverty period. So why should we turn up and play the game? Why do we turn up at these conferences, at these summits and demand action from our world leaders when we know or I don't, e I don't even answer but I have it in the back of my head in the job that I do is like why are we turning up and playing the game when we know that deep down we're not going to change much? That, is there anything else that we can be doing that's more radical, that's actually more profound, that's actually going to, you know, if we actually address that these institutions are, you know, have a deficit of democracy, should we not be shining a light on that and playing it for the long term to actually achieve what we want to achieve? Very good question. Just to agree with the sentiment there, that if you think, whenever you see a UN conference, whatever it is, whatever the issue, whether it's a WTO conference around trade and so on, one thing you must know, that 90% of the deals have been done six months ago, right? When you get to the actual conference, there's just a 10% wiggle room around some language here and there, and it's really very difficult to get a breakthrough. So the main thing we got to do, and this is what Greenpeace is doing, we have been pulling back from how much of effort we're putting in the UNFCC. We're not walking away from it completely, and I'll tell you why in a second. Um, but unless we can get serious constituencies of citizens in every capital around the world who are saying to the governments, when you go to Peru, when you go to Paris, these are the positions you should be taking, then forget it. Paris is not going to deliver. And right now, if we're brutally honest, on the facts that are before us, for those of you who don't know, the next big moment is the climate negotiations in 2015 in Paris. Now, let's just remind ourselves, it's a deja vu moment for some of you who have been involved because in Copenhagen, we went to Copenhagen with exactly that because the science was telling us and the very governments of the world in Bali two years before Copenhagen said that we have to understand the science and we have to go to Copenhagen and get a fab deal. Not a fabulous deal, a fair, ambitious and legally binding deal. What we got in Copenhagen was not a fab deal but a flab outcome full of loopholes and bullshit, right? And we are basically, and, and what was the science telling us in 2009? Emissions must peak by 2015 and start coming down. And our politicians conveniently just pushed the timetable uh, along and completely ignored the science. So the only option right now is to ensure that we are building maximum resistance and momentum on a country-by-country -country basis, on a community-by-community community basis, and why we should not walk away from it completely. What's and all, it is still the only option we have of a global deal. And for the powerful countries of the world, and today the powerful countries of the world are not the same powerful countries of before, because countries like the BRICS countries and all, you know, Brazil, Russia, Indonesia, India, and China, and so on, are also part of that club now. And they have to also step up and provide leadership. But important to know that the people, if I can use a totally non-academic word here, the people who are really getting screwed are the people from the small island states, the least developing countries, the marginal location countries, and so on. And for those people, for peop for the Governments of those countries, especially like the Association of Small Island States, we have to use that vehicle to actually at least keep the voice there and hope that sanity will prevail. 
I mean, I still, I'm an optimist, right? So while I wouldn't bet money that Paris will deliver a fair, ambitious, and legally binding climate treaty, I still want to believe that it's still within our grasp, even if it's a small possibility. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Kumi. It's good to see you. I guess I wanted to ask one about, um, as a former Greenpeacer and somebody who started my career there early, I never found it to be an organization that was very aware of gender issues, um, which was hard as a young woman activist. Um, and I very much have admired your involvement um, in UN women's efforts and various efforts. So many of the environmental issues that come up have disproportionate impacts for certain groups of people. And I've heard you talk about some of this, but I'm wondering if you could talk about what you're doing as Greenpeace, and obviously a Greenpeace that's changing in terms of bringing together some of the social and gender issues with the environmental issues. And finally, just to say that I saw recently on Twitter that Greenpeace Africa put out a note in condolence of the young women who had been kidnapped in Nigeria, and I just wanted to congratulate you for that. Thank you very much for asking that question. You know, the women's movement decades ago gave us one of the most powerful ideas of activism, but sadly, one of the most awfully cumbersome words. And that was this whole idea of intersectionality, right? That the women's movement was saying, if you want to ad address gender equity, you needed to understand how gender interacts with race, class, ability, religion, and so on. And I think that that perspective has been missing from the broader NGO community and the broader civil society community. And that was something I worked very hard on for the last 10 years before I came to Greenpeace when I was at Civicus, at breaking down the barriers that exist within civil society groups. Interestingly enough, those barriers are being broken down big time by climate change itself. Today, no development NGO, whether it's Oxfam, Save the Children, Action Aid, smaller groups, you name it, they are big, big players, as big players as Greenpeace is on climate change, right? If you look at the way young people are engaging in, you know, I mean, young people today, apologies to those of us who are my age and older here, when young people ask me, you know, what do you think is gonna happen? I say, you know what, if I was you, don't bunch, don't bank on the current adult leadership. We are the biggest bunch of losers you're gonna find. We have run out of fresh ideas. Seriously, we are keep saying the same things in the same frames and so on. We need freshness of thinking. We need young people who can imagine a world which is actually fundamentally different from the one that we have actually lived in. And I have to tell you that wherever I go in the world, I am inspired by the perspectives of young people. I should just say, though, on a lighter note, you know, uh, when I joined Greenpeace, because of my background in the labor movement and in the anti-apartheid struggle and so on, somebody came up to me one day and said, I'm trying to figure out, you talk a lot about gender and this and that and uh, poverty and so on. Tell me something, are you really a watermelon? I said, what do you mean, what is a watermelon? He said, green on the outside, red on the inside. And thankfully today in Greenpeace, I can talk about, I'm not the only one talking about gender equity, because if you take the point about violence increasing as a result of climate impacts, for me, we know that in all war, all war and conflict, women and children pay the biggest, biggest price. And if climate change is intensifying war and conflict, just on that indicator alone, one could make the argument in that sense that you know, climate change is as much a feminist and women's issue as it is anything else. And I should say on a positive note, 
most of the women's movement are very actively involved today in the fights on climate in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and as well as uh, in the developed world. And I should say that because women generally, sadly, have a greater sense of sensitivity towards the lives that they have brought into this world than men do, that women are coming quite often, even in conservative places and in some conservative communities in the United States where I've had an opportunity to engage with people, that what we are finding is that people are coming to, we must act on fossil fuels because of my child. You know? So there's a lot of, I would say, intellectual fermentation at the moment, and I think it's good for us to be searching and understanding what the intersections are because we're not doing it well at the moment. Thanks for a fantastic talk. You talked earlier on about democratic deficit and the problems that arise from that, but one of the big issues that I encounter as someone who works in climate change and trying to encourage positive activity on it is the challenge associated with governments which only have four-year lifespans and the fact that the difficulties around or the problem of climate change is one that expands beyond that. And so any politician who wants to deliver some sort of change will have the backlash of that because, you know, naturally some people you know, oil companies and so on, and will resist it. But the benefit of that activity won't be seen for, for a long time to come. So you often hear people about talking about benign dictators and so on. So how can we sort of try and encourage activity in that context? That's an excellent observation and good question. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy to our political leaders. You might think that, you know, I'm, I'm giving them a hard time in this talk. But, you know, when I talk to a range of them, I can see the difficulty that they are facing, which is that they are strangulated by these election cycles, right? But what is needed right now is moral courage and political will. And if it means losing an election to make the point, that is the right thing to do, do it. Don't stay in power and hold on to power and do exactly the same thing that in fact you know is actually not gonna solve the problem that we are seeking to, that we need to address. And by the way, even CEOs of big companies, one of their challenges is that they are strangulated by what I call the tyranny of quarterly reporting cycles. You know, this real push for short-term delivery, short-term. So, you know, I have a you know, nuanced understanding of we should have, because you know, these, whether it's people in government or whether it's people in business, these are our brothers and sisters. We have to, and, and, and your question boils down to my last bullet point or second last bullet point, is you have put your finger on how the electoral system does not work, right? So, you know, in, in, in the way the election cycles and the short-term pushes and so on. So, so part of what conclusion I take away from these kinds of observation is that we have to be thinking of how do we redesign, re-innovate, and transform existing ways in which we think about picking, selecting our public representatives and so on and so forth. Hi, uh, my name is Julia. I'm from Fossil Free Source. Uh, thank you very much, Kimi, for mentioning our campaign and particularly the success that we had today, which is very exciting of SOAS imposing this moratorium on fossil fuel investments. So this is only a temporary moratorium, only until November, where they will actually make a decision on uh, divestment uh, for the long term. So between now and then, there's a lot to do in terms of keeping up the pressure and making sure that actually happens. And we really do need all of your help. So we'll be around afterwards uh, with this sign. Upstairs, I think there's a drink reception. So if anybody wants to come talk to us and get more involved, we'd really love it. Um, or if you haven't got time, you can also email us at info at fossilfreesos.org as well. That's not a question, but just a comment.
Thanks for reminding us about the message from Howard Zinn that obedience is the major problem contributing to injustice. I want to ask more specifically what this means for the issue of climate change, which has at least two aspects. One is the daily generation of greenhouse gas emissions, and second, the, the further exploitation of fossil fuels throughout the world, especially financed from London, where most of us here are, are living, and as well as the unequal effects of climate change or climate chaos is perhaps a better description, especially in the global south. So I want to ask more specifically, what forms of obedience in our daily lives should we question or stop? And what kinds of disobedience might help to stop the expansion of fossil fuel exploitation, especially being financed from London? That's a complicated and good question, which requires a longer time to answer, but I'll try and be as brief as I can. I think that today the obligation, the moral burden on us as citizens who understand that we are sitting on a time bomb and we are getting quite close to the tipping point means that we have to be willing to exercise mental courage as well as physical courage. What I mean by that is, the, the biggest problem is we have to get our heads around understanding that it is possible for us to meet our energy needs, meet our societal needs, not in the excessive way that we are doing it now, on the one hand, but do it in a way that is not contributing to further accumulation of greenhouse gases. What's often the case and our political leaders tend to do this quite brilliantly in some countries, they pass the buck on to citizens, sort of saying, well, y'all are the ones who are driving the cars, y'all are the ones who are, you know, you must look at your footprint and so on. So what my view on that is, I think, you know, things like recycling and looking at the personal, our personal ways in which we live our life is a really important place to start one's activism but it's a really bad place to end one's activism, right? So what I'm saying is that there are things, and the way you pose the question is brilliant, actually, because it's a sort of disobedience being displayed about things that you have taken for granted for a long, long time in your life, you know, because we just didn't know, you know, we were none the wiser. And that's one thing, you know, that I should say, that none of us, and I will say to you very honestly, if it wasn't for my then, 15-year-old daughter who said to me, because when Greenpeace approached me, I was in the middle of a hunger strike with regard to Zimbabwe, and I told them, you know, sorry, bad timing, I can't uh, consider this. And when I spoke to my daughter, she said, Dad, I won't speak to you if you don't consider this seriously when you finish your stupid hunger strike, because this is about my future, and you, you really don't get it. it it's, it's shocking that, that you, as an educated person, right, you know, you don't really get how we are running out of time. And I was completely taken aback by it. And actually, I'm in the process of just starting to write a book now, which almost, you know, is going to thank, starts with saying thank you to my daughter. Thank you for, you know, I feel both humiliated and embarrassed, as well as grateful, because 
basically we need to get more and more people who are in power, not to feel a sense of guilt or stupidity and so on. So I'm sort of doing this partly to say if the head of Greenpeace only could have woken up 10 years ago and fully got the, smelt the coffee, then why should anybody else feel ashamed? Because we are in a situation where blame and accusation done in a negative way is not helpful. What I'm trying to do is you name the problem in honest terms, in power terms. So you'd be surprised that, you know, today, like when our folks were in prison in Russia last year, I was surprised at the kinds of people that called me, you know, to offer support, right? Some of them, you know, are obvious, uh, others really took me, uh, but the good thing about it was there were religious leaders, trade union leaders, CEOs of big companies, and so on. And let me end this question by saying that there are multiple things that we can do in the form of civil disobedience. We have to f look at our own lives, think what we have control over, and try to change it. But we have to then ask our question, well, I still need to commute, and I'm still going to be dependent on fossil fuels, for example. What do I do to generate the demand on those that power that are saying that we have to stick with this and not innovate and not introduce the new technologies and not ups it's not a question of introducing now, it's a question of upscaling because you know a lot of the technology is there. It's a question of generating the political will and investment to move it. But I deliberately chose the Cornell West quote, you know, where that where he said some of us have to die. And I'm not saying to you that you know, that's the choice that you have to make, but let me tell you what choice we have to make. We have to get serious about looking at what we consume, how we consume it, not just fossil fuels. And also I think we need a serious conversation about what constitutes happiness, what constitutes the good life, and so on, because we have just become stupid. I mean, really, humanity has become stupid. Right? Uh, what we value is just crazy, you know? I mean, I sit in meetings with Bill Gates where, you know, we're talking about Millennium Development Goals and so on, and I'm just thinking all the time, not uh, Bill Gates, just an example, but I'm thinking, you know, how do we justify that level of consumption, you know, right? Where, in fact, if you're walking, Okay, I want to mention names now, right? There are certain people on this planet. If they are walking and 50,000 drop from their, from their pocket, 50,000, say, pounds, it's not worth them stopping and picking it up and putting it in the pocket because the amount of time it takes them to do that, if they continued walking, they'll make 100,000, right? I, you know, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm caricaturing it, but that's how absurd things are. So we have to resist some of the things that we have taken as, you know, are we adjusted to these norms? Let's get unadjusted to these norms, and that's part of the personal civil disobedience that I think is necessary at this time. I wanted to ask you also about fossil fuels, but in particular about fracking in the context of climate change. What do you think of what's happening in the UK today with the current proposed trespass the government pushed to present fracking as an alternative clean technology and, and what example most importantly is UK giving to other countries 
if these laws go ahead? I, you know, I think it's a disaster, but, but let's get some facts on the table, right? Uh, it is not untrue that many environmental organizations and parts of Greenpeace as well took a softer line towards gas 10 years ago versus coal, right? And there were many environmental groups, including some in the US even today, who say that natural gas could be a transitional fuel until we build up the renewable energy uh, capability. However, there's natural gas and there's natural gas, and fracking, hydraulic fracturing, right, is the worst, or one of the worst ways in which you can extract that gas. The implications are so far in early stages still, relatively early stages, if you look at the experience from the US. Those of you who want to know more, go see the, you can pick it up on YouTube, I think these days, Gasland and Gasland 2, uh, which shows about exactly what happens when you do it. When people are opening the taps and you light a match and the water you know, kind of combusts, where, where entire towns, there's no clean water anymore, uh, and so on. So you've got a water scarcity, uh, water contamination problem, and then importantly, the release of methane gas, right? Which is, you know, a worse greenhouse gas, by the way, than carbon, right? So given that, I think that, you know, we should be encouraging our governments to not engage in, because the amount of money that goes into a fracking project, right? Like our government with Shell is trying to do a fracking project in Karoo. Any of you who come from, who know Southern Africa and know South Africa will know that Karoo is one of the most water stressed areas to start with in our country, right? But you see the big companies go there with big promises to our government. Oh, we'll pull so much out, you'll get so much revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's a short-termism approach, you know, that needs to be challenged. So I think that, and you know what, I'm sure all of you have heard the Queen's speech, right? How many of you didn't hear the Queen's speech? Okay, please go and all you anti-monarchists should go read it. Because you know why? I mean, that was a speech that Cameron wrote for her, but, or that section anyway. But basically, you know, fracking is, you know, like for example, you own a house now, and the company comes, and you say, no, I'm not giving you access. So they start a project, say, somewhere there. They can then shoot a pipe underneath and pull out the gas, because in the Queen's speech, basically it's saying, what's underneath your house does not belong to you, and we can do whatever we want with it, right? And this is not about, you know, going deep underneath, right? You know, and, and, and by the way, just so you're clear, that the technology associated with fracking as a problem, especially that they are, you know, they build these concrete sort of channels, kind of tunnels, but there have been multiple, multiple cases of cracks and the release of, of methane, sometimes quite not right near the project can be about uh, a kilometer, two, two, three kilometers. So I would say that why would we not take that same amount of money and invest in other resources? Let me tell you just two ideas. 
There is an initiative in the United States called Solar Roadways. Anybody heard of it? Basically, we can generate in the US just using all the parking lots that we have and every uh, uh, road that exists by putting in these panels that can actually capture sunlight, we can generate three times the electricity needs of the United States. Why would we not do it? Let me leave that question hanging. On solar, we have huge solar potential in the US, not even 5% is being captured. Why are we not doing it? On wind, same. What's the answer to all three questions? Because nobody is going to get a a license and monopoly on the sun or the wind and make the kind of excessive obscene profits that they've been making for a century so and, and more, right? Because what we are talking about is an energy system that ultimately has to be more decentralized micro-renewable energy, not these big uh, projects. And my government, for example, in South Africa says, oh, we need big coal projects and big nuclear projects because one-fifth of our population is completely energy poor at the moment, right? Just so you know, 1,6 billion people in the world do not have access to a single light bulb, right? And am I committed to those people getting energy access? Absolutely. But those people are not going to get it by a coal plant or a nuclear power plant because there are small communities, relatively speaking, living in decentralized remote areas and so on. And the way to reach them fast, efficiently and cost-wise is by decentralized renewable energy projects, especially uh, solar. And I can tell you, any of you come from India, the work we're doing now in the state of Bihar, one of the most poorest in terms of electricity provision, it is doable, it's workable. What is necessary is, what is missing is political will. I, I think I'll conclude at that point if it's okay, partly because I'm also running out of steam, and partly I'm seeing the body language telling me, let's go drink. So, but I thought I, I was trying to think how to end on a light note. And I was thinking of a Scottish friend of mine, uh, the head of the Scottish Council for Voluntary Organizations, you know, the SEVO, the umbrella body. And he was addressing a group of business people and saying how important NGOs were, you know, to advance a better society and so on. And a very frustrated CEO put up his hands and said, hey, you're going on and on about NGOs this, NGOs that, NGOs that. What the hell is an NGO anyway? And so Martin Syme, my friend, gives an equally exasperated response. He says, you know, if you really want to understand NGOs, all you have to do is understand Christopher Columbus. Because when he set off, he didn't know exactly where he was going. When he arrived, he didn't know exactly where he was. <laughs> when he got back, he didn't know exactly where he had been. But he had a huge impact on the world, and he did it all on somebody else's money. <laughs> Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Well, I'll follow that with another anecdote. When I came back to work at SOAS after having done my master's and PhD here and then been away for around 10 years, I told a friend I was coming and he said, SOAS, isn't that the place where they're protesting every day? If it's Monday, they're protesting against a government. If it's Tuesday, the SOAS Samba Band is parading outside. If it's Wednesday, it must be an occupation of the management offices. 
And to be fair, there's probably some truth in that, and certainly that has our reputation. But I wish my friend was here tonight, because I think he would begin to understand why actually I think we should be proud and pleased at SOAS, no matter how disruptive it occasionally is, of having that reputation, of having that tradition. It's important for the character of the place. It's important for the character of the lifeblood of SOAS, our, our student body, the people who really make SOAS what it is. And I think, as, as Kumi has told, shown us tonight, or reminded us tonight, because there are just so many things that need to be protested against. So please, can you join me again in, in thanking Kumi for her wonderful talk? <laughs>